Wassail the trees, that they may bear you many a plum and many a pear, for more or less the fruits will bring, as you do give them wassailing. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. I'm Devin. I have a master's degree in American history and indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing my PhD in medieval history. And the Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that explores the ritualized year, folklore, and history. And today we're talking about fall food practices? Yeah, like fall folklore around seasonal foods. Yeah. It'll be good. Um, so yeah. So we're gonna start in Europe, right, Sonia? That's right. Where apples are from, sort of. They're from yeah. close to Europe, Eurasia. Kind of, you know. They, yeah, they originated in what's now the Middle East, and then you know through trade routes, got to Europe over time. Certainly by the classical age. Um, but I know more about the Middle Ages, so that's where I'm starting my <laughs> my rant on this one, I guess. That sounds great. So what were people doing with apples in the Middle Ages? Were they giving them to teachers? Uh, well, there weren't that many teachers around, <laughs> and probably not. Uh, it was a thing that... Um, it, it was quite common for children to kind of grab apples and have that as a snack. Like, there are even little sayings, like, you know, like, if you want to make a child happy, give them two apples and that kind of thing. Um, but for the most part, they weren't eaten raw and they were still, you know, they hadn't really been um, kind of selectively bred um, into more sweet forms. Mm-hmm. And they would have been much smaller. So so they'd be closer to a crab apple. Okay. You know, so quite tart, relatively small. Um, and they were mostly actually used for cooking and in ciders. And that is true through the Middle Ages into the early modern period easily. And I think one of the big things about this is this is around the time when this idea of the apple as being the forbidden fruit really takes hold. Mm-hmm. Um, because in, you know, in the book of Genesis and the Bible, God creates the Garden of Eden and he has Adam and Eve in there and he tells them you can eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, but don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course they do, and then they get banished from paradise and have to, you know, ruined it for the rest of us. Ugh. But there, there, it's not actually specified what exactly the fruit is yeah. on the tree of good and evil. But in in Latin, mm-hmm. it's it's written as malum, which means an evil. Mm-hmm. But apple is like malum, like slight. There's a slight difference with with like the accents, okay, on, on, and the emphasis on the word. So they're both and they're both spelled the same. If you forget to leave and if you leave off the accents, they're both just spelled M A L U M. So there just basically ends up being this the this kind of confusion where people think that malum as in an evil thing. <laughs> And are reading it as an apple. So that's why now all the imagery around it to this day is still an apple tree. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought that was kind of kind of a interesting little fun fact. It's also why in the, in the Christmas Carol, the 12 Days of Christmas, mm-hmm. the partridge is in a pear tree because pears were seen as good. Oh. Whereas apples were seen as like evil, <laughs> kind of evil and malicious fruits. Oh wow! <laughs> I didn't know a fruit could be malicious, like without being I poisonous. Mean, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the apple did, you know, did ruin all of humanity's paradise chances. I guess so. You know, quite quite a malicious food. <laughs> <laughs> But despite that, 
I mean, it was still quite commonly used in different cooking, you know, like pies and stews, because at, at the time it wasn't uncommon to put fruits into, like, you know, kind of have a, a sweet a sweet element in a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of cooking as well. Yeah. But let's let's get to you know the real the real headliner here, which is apples being used to make cider. <laughs> I mean basically if you were in a region that could grow grapes, you were going to make wine. And if you lived in a place that was too cold to grow grapes, you were m- growing apples to make cider. Yeah, Gotta have that alcohol. That's right. I mean, genuinely, you don't want to drink just water. <laughs> That's, you know, pretty questionable. <laughs> I mean... Genuinely in Europe. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like genuinely. I mean, if you lived, like... It, it, it also depended, of course, on your... On where exactly you lived. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if you lived high in the mountains and had access to, like, a fresh spring, yeah, go for it. But, you know, you have a relatively dense population. You don't want to just be drinking straight-up water because there might be who knows what in it. Cholera. Yeah. <laughs> just a lot of very nasty diseases that are going to cause you a lot of diarrhea. <laughs> Cute. So... <laughs> Everyone drank ale, which is like unhopped beer. And, you know, again, if you were in more northern regions where wine was not as much of a thing, you were going to drink a lot of cider. And, I mean, it's relatively easy to make is the other thing. I mean, it it's labor intensive because you have to juice all the apples. At this point, you're juicing them by hand, basically. I mean, not by hand, like you have, you know, tools. You're, you're not just like crushing an apple in your bare <laughs> fist, bare, but my like bare hand. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm just saying this is done with like, you know, presses and stuff. You don't have the Vitamix yet, <laughs> but you know, otherwise, it's it's pretty straightforward. You've got that. You ferment your apple juice, and and there you go. You've got Hi. some. Some got some cider. It's a good time. It it sterilizes it for you so you don't have any nasty bacteria in there. And in fact, in a lot of places this was so important that there were whole rituals around it. Mm-hmm. Um especially through the winter. I'm jumping ahead in our calendar a little bit, but I wanted to uh share about wassailing because that's what I was, that's kind of the little incantation I read off at the beginning of this episode. So you have this custom that's in and around sort of, especially in the south of England and like the Channel Islands, you have what's called orchard visiting wassails. So it's this ancient custom where you visit the orchards inside or producing regions and you basically are going to wake up the trees. So basically, you show up and you want to wake up the trees and scare away evil spirits, which will ensure continuous good harvests. And you do this by singing and making all kinds of racket, banging pots and pans. You have a whole procession through the orchard with your voted village king and queen of the wassail. And those two would be leading the song and the procession as you made your way through the orchards. And once you had kind of made your procession through the orchard, you would lift up the wassail queen, and she would go up into the boughs of one of the trees, and she would take pieces of toast that had been soaked in wassail, which is like sort of mulled cider, and she would apply them to the tree, and you could pour some of the mulled cider around the trees and it's this idea that you're taking the fruits of the previous years and giving them back to the tree spirits to give thanks Uh, a lot of the time this would be accompanied by an incantation or a song like what i recited at the beginning and then after the gift had been given to the tree 
There's, again, shouting, banging drums, pots and pans, singing, and you make your way off to the next orchard, and you just kind of keep doing this through the orchards until you've woken up all the trees and scared away all the all the bad spirits. Yes. <laughs> okay. I also just want to, I mean, this is another quick aside, but that's where we get the idea of um, a toast. Like <gasps> when you clink glasses together, because that's the traditional thing where you would dip toasted bread into into the mulled cider and give it back to the tree. <laughs> so if someone calls for a toast, know that it's from, you know, old timey cider making peasants. I love that. Okay, I have one more one one more fun fact about apples and then we can we can scooch over to the Americas. Sweet, let's hear it. So in Irish folklore, there is the idea that if you take an apple and you are a young unmarried woman, you peel the apple into one so that the peel becomes one continuous strand. And then you throw the peel over your shoulder and you look at the shape that it lands in. Yeah. And if the, the shape, you try to find like letters and the letters will be your future husband's initials. Yeah, we did this. Uh, yeah. Last year. And yeah. I think I got an O, which is not accurate. Yeah, I forget what mine was, but it's definitely not correct <laughs> but you know maybe we did it wrong Devin. maybe maybe we didn't maybe we should have gone out and like i don't know blessed a few apple trees first yeah maybe i mean you can't do it anymore regardless so yeah no i can yeah, only be there to supervise an, an old married lady now <laughs> <laughs> that's true i am now the matron of <laughs> this podcast <laughs> But Devin, why don't you tell us now about apples in the Americas? Because uh, I'm assuming they have a slightly more recent history there. Yes. Because, so apples are from what is now Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, they like made their way across Europe or whatever. They're part of the Rose family, which I thought was baffling. Huh. But, yeah, so my knowledge of them starts really when they were brought to the Americas because they're not, being from Kazakhstan, not native to the Americas at all. Yes, that makes sense. I don't think there's any type of rose that's native to the Americas. But they were brought with the first English settlers. So there had been Europeans in the Americas for... A little while at the time that English like settlements started to be established, right? Um, but the English had like have a kind of interesting history, especially in like New England and Virginia, because they came to parts of the Americas that had already experienced uh, what are called like virgin soil epidemics. So that's like the the first wave of smallpox epidemics among the indigenous people. Oh, okay. Because they had never, they there weren't, because the population density in so many, in so much of North America was really, really low. And yeah. they weren't, you know, building up major cities for the most part around freshwater sources. You know, it was around like large lakes and things like that. There wasn't a whole lot of, communicable diseases especially because they didn't have like livestock that were living in close quarters with them right which is where like, a lot of european communicable diseases come from so they didn't have they had like food poisoning and things that you would get from plants which is why a lot of the traditional medicines deal with purging or fasting or sweating because it was like if you get this toxin out of your body then you'll be healthy again Um, but generally tend to just weaken a person who's suffering from something like smallpox yes very Um, much so anyway these yeah these communicable diseases that the densely populated uh europeans had and you know living with like pigs and stuff 
Europeans brought over these diseases, oftentimes without even knowing it, you know, if they had recovered from the disease or something. And because there was no acquired immunity of any kind, it just blew through these indigenous communities, especially on the coast. So right. it's literally the, the, the opposite of what a decimation is, right? So decimation is one in 10. This yeah. is like one in 10, like one, decimation is one in 10 people died. Yeah. Generally in indigenous communities, it was the opposite. So one in 10 people lived. So it's whatever a 90 nation is. It's really horrifying. And so a lot of the communities on the East Coast just didn't exist at all anymore. Yeah. Or had moved inland to join up with indigenous communities that lived further inland and hadn't been exposed to the diseases yet. Um, so the English, unlike the French and Spanish, were coming into land that when they built their communities was not going to be contested by indigenous people. Right. Or, yeah. It wasn't the traditional lands of people who were still alive anymore. Eventually, I mean, it didn't take very long for the English to start pushing out into lands that people were definitely on. Yeah. Uh, but for these first couple settlements, ex- examples like Jamestown, Roanoke, Massachusetts Bay, there weren't really people there anymore. Yeah. So the English showed up also in a different way than the French or Spanish with the express intent of settling and building communities there. So they brought crops and seeds and like graftings of old world plants to try and establish in North America. They specifically brought a lot of fruit trees. They the English were really passionate about their fruit trees, but a lot of these plants did not fare particularly well, especially the wheat that they brought. I don't know how much anybody knows about New England, but it is rocky and doesn't have great soil. Um, and like Virginia does, but it's it's very clay-based uh, soil, so it's also not great for wheat. You need super rich soil for wheat. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is at that time, um, just coming from, you know, European understandings of things, they thought yeah. at that time that basically if, if something was along the same um, latitude, that things yeah. would grow... Right, like that. A lot, as long as it was at the same latitude, things would grow, you know, relatively well in those areas, and that that does make sense in a lot of you know the Eurasian continent kind of context. I mean, if it's going to grow, grows okay in southern Italy, it's going to grow okay in southern Spain. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, obviously, it's a completely different situation in the Americas with, you know, there isn't that same necessarily, it, it doesn't, it doesn't apply. Yeah, so even if the, the, you're at the same latitude, the issues really are that the soil composition is going to be radically different. And because of the geography of North America, the weather is really different. Europe yes. tends to be dry and kind of cool and have a relatively stable climate whereas yeah, it's North quite America, mild if anyone's been to Canada <laughs> knows that it will be hot and damp all summer mm-hmm. and cold and frozen and desolate in the winter like it's a continent of extremes and the soil composition is just radically different because of how you know the mega continent used to where things broke off it was just very different places yeah exactly and like mountain ranges right like yeah we tend to have like longitudinal kind of ranges here so you don't get that buffer from cold northerly winds the way you do yeah you know in europe and that kind of thing but yeah no i mean it it makes sense that the vast majority of european plants just aren't going to thrive in the americas yeah exactly And it has to do with, like, how our ocean currents are, you know, we're on the side 
of the Atlantic that's bringing warm air up north to cool off and then be brought over to Europe. It's a whole thing. Anyway, I'm sure that there's a scientist who's going to listen to this and be like, this isn't quite right, but that's the basic gist of it. Yeah, we're we're doing our best. (laughs) Yeah, so a lot of the plants didn't really work out. And I'm going to talk because I'm going to talk about apples, but I'm also going to talk really quickly about a couple of other plants just to talk about these interactions between indigenous people. And then I'll get back to apples. Yeah. So the plants that didn't work out that those were a lot of the staple crops. So not a lot like the fruits and things, you know, we're familiar with apples, pears, peaches, apricots, figs, all of those things also grow in North America. Those were things brought over by the Europeans, right? They grow well, but you can't make an entire diet off of figs because they're not going to grow all year round and you can't store them, you know, other than drying them out. Like you need to have a staple crop and wheat and oats didn't work. Um, Eventually they got a good rye crop in New England, but not in Virginia. So they needed to find out what it was that indigenous people were living off of and it was corn at first the puritans just stole a bunch of corn that Uh, sounds right so like you have this like thanksgiving narrative which actually happened like a few years in to the puritans living there because that first november they showed up starving too late to really plant anything uh, they were just sort of keeping these cuttings alive, and it was a really it was a bad scene. Um, so they started breaking into indigenous stores. They couldn't figure out how to grow corn. The indigenous people didn't really want anything to do with them. Um, Understandable. And so they started stealing a bunch of corn until eventually, by finding a couple of interpreters, people who spoke English or French, they were able to sort of come to agreements and hospitable interactions with the indigenous people that were around them and this is how they got information about crops and how to grow them in this new to them soil so that's how they came upon corn or maize and also like squashes and certain potato variations a majority of the potatoes that we eat now are actually from mexico and south america but there were a few in north america as well and for some context, there's a narrative about a lot of the what is now America, United States, Anglo-Canada food culture, and that it's, you know, so much of it is taken from indigenous people, and to an extent that's correct. But to create a broader context, this is coming um, from an Oxford study of food culture. The indigenous people of Virginia and New England didn't have salt, spices, frying pans, ovens, wheat, sugar, dairy, or any domestic animals aside from the dog. So the ways that they had to cook things were, and the types of things that would have been familiar, foods that would have been familiar to Europeans, it was not an extensive list. Um, And if you're thinking about this, like, they don't have frying pans. They don't have anything that would have been, like, iron or steel. So you're, like, probably thinking, how did they cook things? How did they sweeten things? How, what what were they eating? This doesn't make any sense. And that's where um, my short little tidbit about squashes come in. Another um, fall food. Yes. So squashes and gourds are awesome. They're from North America. A lot of them are relatively sweet, but more importantly, they're gourds. So you can hollow out, you can hollow them out and eat the flesh of the gourds and they'll be relatively sweet or you can mix them with other fruits and they'll, you know, create like a a, a soup type thing that'll be like sweet and yummy and have a lot of vitamins. You can also dry out and eat the seeds um, or dry them out and then make a sort of like flowery paste out of them. But then once the gourd is hollowed out, you can use it to cook food, to make spoons, to carry water, to do all of these sorts of things. And the, the gourds in combination with clay, pottery, and that type of um, vessel is how you would cook 
food in in this indigenous part of North America. Oh, that's fascinating. And so a lot of what you're getting in terms of food culture from indigenous people is the actual pro- like crop right. rather than the method of making the food. So you're getting how to, you know, hunt and smoke venison and um, how to grow maize and how to store maize rather than how to make a, a bread, right? Because the 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 bread content you need like an oven and in, like you know something that indirect heat yeah in order to make a, a true bread so those are things that came sort of with the introduction of european cooking technology right and indigenous agricultural technology so it's a combination of those things and the new trade facilitated by europeans from south america all the way up to um the far north where like there was obviously extensive trade before Europeans but the the speed with which you could move things you know once you have large ocean going vessels and these European settlements that want all of these like sort of consumer goods um you get a lot more of these crops moving really far of these like food technologies like chocolate and stuff moving rather quickly around the entire world. And of course the introduction of salt of spices from Asia with the peppers and stuff from South America. Uh, Right. And this is about when sugar also is getting really. Yes. Comes to the West Indies. Right. Um, yeah, that was the like 17th century um, and France sort of really had a big deal to do with that. Um, but we're mostly talking about apples. So to get back to apples, this was a crop that actually did really well that the Europeans brought with them. Excuse me if you hear my paper. Um, and so some things about just how the apples sort of work is like... I think you mentioned at the beginning that the apple seeds are like, I mean, to use this scientific term that I found, uh, they're heterozygotes, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so essentially, they're often pollinated from multiple. The seed is created from the pollen and flower of multiple trees. So the 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 apple that you're going to get from the seed might not be the same as the apple that surrounded said seed because it might have, you know, a totally other type of apple tree pollinated that flower. Right. Um, so that's the thing. So all of the apples that were really being eaten, you know, that you would eat from your hand or in cooking are from grafted trees uh, where you like graft the roots together. Mm -hmm. Um, And those first arrived in America in 1607 with the the Jamestown colony and then later in the 1620s with Massachusetts Bay. But the the seeded apple orchards also became super popular because all of these variations of apples especially winter apples could be used for cider and this was super important for maintaining european colonies but also trading with indigenous people and the indigenous people were like super stoked about apples too so you get this thing that apology for the name that is used here but it's what it was called the indian orchard um which are these massive orchards that were sort of grown all across North America in the early 18th century, late 17th century um, by indigenous people where they had been given gifts of apples um, or traded apples and then kept the seeds and planted them. A lot of these apples came from trade with the French up north and made their way sort of south but there ended up being these huge orchards of just sort of wild apples um, all over North America. But the real cultiv- 
motivation of like grafted apples for specific things began in the 18th century um, as these orchards became you know more and more fruiting trees because it takes a while for a tree to really start to fruit yeah it usually takes a few years yeah and the and then like the 19th century is really when it's called the the golden age of american pomology (laughs) which i guess is the study of apples um but in this period in the 19th century so one there were like requirements because apples were so important to one alcohol production (laughs) let's not pretend that that's not vital that is that's like um the the main thing that was it's a it's a really easy way so there's another thing just for context um european europeans and european americans apparently were just like not super into vegetables vegetables are difficult to keep and grow especially like leafy green vegetables leafy green vegetables that all of us now are like i have to get my leafy greens and well they were like they're a pain you can't store them. They only you can only harvest them at a certain time of the year. And since they didn't know what vitamins were, they were like, "Well, this isn't really worth it." So you had a lot of people who were eating, you know, fruits and some root vegetables and obviously cereals and grains, but leafy green vegetables were not really a thing so in order to get vitamins making sure that you had fruits all year was really important and that's where cider and beers come in not just for hydration because the water in north america was generally pretty clean until major cities start becoming a thing you needed to be able like alcohol was still important because these low proof alcohols like ale and ciders have a lot of vitamins and stuff yeah. and can pre- help prevent scurvy and things like that. Also, they can help with um, if you become too dependent on corn. Um, there's this particular type of, like, I think it's iodine deficiency that you get if you're just eating, like, a lot of corn and it causes, like, delusional thinking and, like, blindness uh, and huh. so, like, having cider and alcohols that weren't made from corn is is really important to surviving in early colonial America. And also, as you get to the homesteading period. Right. So, one of the laws that was passed with regards to homesteaders was that in order to homestead, you had to plant... Oh, yeah, you had to plant an orchard of at least 50 apple trees within the first year of your settlement there. Huh. Yeah, and the apples were doing really, really well. And part of the reason that the apples were doing well is because Europeans also brought the honeybee with them. Right. So the honeybee is also from Europe. Um, obviously, there are bees and pollinators native to North America, but they're mostly wasps, um, not bees that produce honey. Um, and the having honeybees and the fruiting orchards together are a really, like, symbiotic uh, agricultural situation um but anyway so when once they have you have all of these orchards growing all across north america it became like people were just like obsessed with apples in the 19th century they were like grown and rated and reviewed the way that we would rate and review like movies now. oh that's fantastic <laughs> like new new apple varieties were coming up all the time yeah and, the 19th like, century really could... loved their like um like selective breeding and like figuring out how to how to get new like yeah. like um varieties of things i i just know this yeah, because they took they... that down some really dark i i was areas. just going to i was just going to talk about like dog shows <laughs> i mean yes I, I i don't want to take it to eugenics i want to, to apply it to like this is how you get like <laughs> pugs yes that is <laughs> that's where we're gonna also, yeah. it, i mean it also leads to a lot of eugenics thinking so you know yes. we, we but yeah. It also, but it brings you it's also, yummy it's apples, also. so we can focus on the good aspects of selectively breeding things that aren't yeah, humans. So, 
Yes. Let's not selectively bring yeah. people. Yeah. Um, uh, agree. It, it did, though, bring uh, upwards of, like, f- estimates are between 14,000 and 17,000 different varieties of apples in the 19th century, just in the, like, in the United States and Canada. Um, that, like, they would be reviewed in these, like, massive books you could, like order from special nurseries like little seedlings to like graft um, to into your orchard like they would mail them it was just like they were like bananas and they were there were all sorts of different varieties um, so I mean things that like we wouldn't even think was an apple now right you know and they would be used for all sorts of different things um, but this is also where like the period in which a majority of the apple varieties that we have now, which just to clarify, there are only 90 varieties that are currently commercially grown in North America. Um, there are more that are now wild apples and that, you know, apple enthusiasts grow because huh. that's um, a community I learned about. You know what? That's a very, that sounds like a very wholesome community. I know. I want to have enough space to become one of those people, especially the people who like also have the bees because I'm obsessed with bees. This is also the period that we get John Chapman, known as Johnny Appleseed, who was like this weird type of missionary. He there was this guy who was he grew he had all these apples in this orchard and also like a kind of revivalist church early revivalist church and john chapman became a follower and then wandered from pennsylvania through ohio and indiana with no shoes and a bunch of apple seeds and seedlings setting up orchards and nurseries and just planting apples and giving people seeds all across this this territories while people were starting to homestead out there essentially bringing cider to the west what was then the western parts of america Um, now that's a missionary i can get behind (laughs) yeah apparently he had a lot of other weird beliefs about things um i didn't follow that train too far but if you're like thinking about johnny appleseed he wasn't bringing just like wholesome family fair it was mostly it was mostly alcohol which again i've already talked about how important that was but But also i mean at the time that was wholesome family fair because your kids were drinking it too yes which i mean let's Um, yeah i mean i I am not advocating underage drinking on this podcast i want to be very clear on that (laughs) however yes at the time you know we, we, you know, cost-benefit analysis. Uh, you know, yeah. you it's like, well, okay, the kids can have, like, a low percentage alcohol so that they can get hydrated, uh, but not catch, like, diphtheria. Yeah. And uh, just if we bounce back to the 17th century super quick, um, we can talk about um, apple pies real quickly. Um, because you guys know the phrase, uh, as American as apple pie. Exactly. American as apple pie, which actually is a pretty American thing. So there were similar pies made in Europe, obviously. Oh yeah. There Um, are like, you know, apple tart, they'd call them recipes from like, I mean, they're recorded in the middle ages. I'm sure there's stuff going back into antiquity, you know, but this yeah, apples into dough. Apple yeah, so the specific apple pie that like we talk about when we talk about American as apple pie um, really has to do with the way that indigenous people thought about the early English, especially in Virginia. This is where like the term Yankee comes from, which apparently referred to people who ate pies for breakfast. Um, Interesting. So that was one of the that was one of the things that Europeans 
brought with them was wrapping like we talked about right yeah with bread was wrapping your food in bread but by this time right you were eating the crust as well oh, yeah. so you were able to make that fluffy crust and you could make it with corn if you like put beaten eggs into it because you can make it rise or if you put um, yeah you're probably incorporating like some butter into there as well like into it yeah you can make the corn rise because obviously yeast isn't going to work on it but, yeah exactly um, it's not a glutenate but uh with the once you get like some of the other cereals growing here but you can make breads and make pies and there are like specifically American apple pies that are developed at this period. So the the English settlers at this time were just sort of like cycling through what fruits were available. But because there were so many different types of apples that uh, bloomed at different times of the year in this period, you could sort of cycle through different types of apples and or pears um, in your in your pies um and a lot of the pies were more like sort of custardy with it's like apple custards right. that are made and put in the filling of the pies that are really interesting um if you guys want to be huge nerds like me and check out one of the historical cooking channels uh with townsend and sons he has a really cool recipe for it's like one of the first documented um, American apple pie recipes that he does a video for on YouTube, which is super cool. Um, but yeah, so that's, and so what sort of happens is as the 19th century goes on, you get the steam engine and railways and mechanical refrigeration, which allows the really, for the really sweet varieties of apples that look really nice and uniform to be shipped really quickly and stored for long periods of time all across America. And that sort of creates a market for like mass agriculture rather than homesteading agriculture and like the home orchard. You would, instead of just having apples that you happen to have in your backyard, you would go to a grocery store or a market and get apples instead that you knew you knew exactly what they're going to taste like. They had probably won awards and you could get them all year and really quickly from anywhere, you know, across the U S and that sort of kills the like massive variety and interest of like the massive variety of apples and interest in apples that Americans had for the century before that. So the 20th century really kind of crushes right. the, the golden age of pomology. But the apple is still a major staple. I eat them for lunch most days. I wanted to tell a legend about an orchard that Ooh. I found. Yeah, so that's that's what that's the sort of history of the apples. And then like we talked about Johnny Appleseed, but there's another legend about a particular orchard. Ooh. Let me just find which orchard it is. Yes, an Indian orchard in Terre Haute, Indiana. I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced because um, it's definitely French. Well, it's the Highland. Listen, we're um, all doing our best to pronounce things on this podcast. But it's in Indiana, so I'm assuming that they no longer pronounce it like French. I don't know. Anyway, it's a legend about a young white woman named Lena who lived with a Delaware community. She had been like captured as a child by this Delaware community and grew up, you know, was integrated into the community and grew up with a new family and was like liked her life, had a good life with these people. But in 1763, the Pennsylvania government wanted to forge an alliance with the communities that were along the river that they lived on. And so they had like made an agreement with the Shawnees who also lived in this area of Ohio, Indiana, um, that they would return um, captured whites to their original family. So a Shawnee brave named Nemo uh, was dispatched to get the captives from this Delaware village. So 
she was convinced by her Delaware father to, and this is, uh, sorry, this is a story that I found in the uh, Ghost Orchard, Ooh. which is a book about the history of apples um, in America. Are, so, are anyway, there going to be ghosts Del- in this story? Yes. Oh, yes. So her Delaware father convinces her that, like, there's no use in fighting the Shawnees and that the government of Pennsylvania isn't going to protect her if she stays living with them. So he convinces her to go for, like, the good of everyone. And she goes with this guy, Nemo, and they travel for weeks, you know, because she's got to get back to Indiana. Right. And they fall in love. Aww. Which is super cute. Very cute. And so by the time they reached this Shawnee village, they had decided that she didn't want to go back to her family. She wanted to stay with Nemo, and they wanted to get married. But that was illegal in the 1700s. White British citizens couldn't marry Native people. So they ran away. They went back to Lena's village, uh, the Delaware village. And when they, you know, and it took weeks and weeks to get back. And on their way, they encountered these Miami Braves who Nemo had killed. But when, by the time they got to the Delaware village, there was nothing left of it. It had been burned down. Mm -hmm. There had been a fight within the community and Lena's family had been killed, and then the rest had, like, moved on because the Miami were moving through that territory. Right. But um, because there was no one there anymore, and Lena, you know, knew how to live there, they sort of, in an area close by, set up a homestead and married, I guess, as... They're all alone, but like they married and they had a kid, and she planted a bunch of apple seeds and had like a fledgling orchard, Aww. and they were like living together in this little thing. But then the Miami Warriors came back, right, a few years later. Yeah. And they killed Nemo. Oh no. Yeah, apparently it was a long struggle, but eventually they killed him. And Lena. In her, this is a quote, here we go. Lena, in her despair, handed her infant son to one of the Miami Braves and plunged Nemo's scalping knife into her heart to join him in death. And then, according to the legend, their son grew up to fight alongside Tecumseh. Mm -hmm. And the place where, so they were buried in the orchard, right? The, The Nemo and... Lena were buried in this orchard and it became a sacred place. And the Shawnee, young Shawnee women would come to the orchard, you know, after the trees had grown and were fruiting, and they would place wildflowers on the grave and they would leave all of the apples on the trees so that they could feed the spirits of Neo, Nemo and Lena. Oh. And yeah. That's really sweet. And it was like a place where you would go and like, you know, they became these sort of, like, spirits of, like, you know, love and stuff. And so these young women would go and, like, give them offerings and, like, the orchard was left for them. And eventually when, um, like, Indiana became a white territory, uh, white settlers took possession of the land that the orchard was on in the 1830s. Right. And they started burying people there. Um, and it's now like a cemetery and some of the trees are still there. Um, Mm. so yeah, this is a a really like apple trees don't live super long, but it was, it was there for a long time. Yeah. It was a, a sacred orchard to feed the spirits of lovers. Well, I think that's a beautiful story to end it on for today. We've talked about apples, apple cider squash just all the bounty of agriculture right now yeah and also apple cider and many other apple products like apple butter applesauce all these things are super easy to make on your stovetop so yeah and people want to get in on the fall joy yeah and squash continues to be i mean in most places 
really cheap. It's really easy to cook with. Oh, yeah. You know, butternut squash soup is pretty aces. Acorn? Acorn squash with some maple syrup? That's my go-to. And on that note, I think we're going to say goodbye for this week. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you would like to support us on Patreon, it's always very much appreciated. We have exclusive merch. We do. It's dope. (laughs) Unlike me. (laughs) Listen, Devin, I like to remind myself that just because I'm trash doesn't mean I can't do good things. (laughs) Trash can, not trash cannot. Anyway, do good work. Patreon exclusive merch. And we'll see you next week. (laughs) Goodbye.